I mean, I've had a very unorthodox career, and I actually think that those tend to make for the best stories. If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. With me is, is my friend and, and trailblazer, Ileana Ores Valentina. Uh, she is uh, a leader in all things future of work. She is uh, the managing director of uh, Canada Innovation for Accenture. Accenture on a lot of boards, uh, all for, as she's going to talk to you about. She's been a leader in blockchain, a leader in all things digital technology, now AI. She's done so much to be so young. Like, what are you, like 25? Like, she's <laughs> it's a... But genetics. Genetics it, means I will look young for a long time to come, but I am younger than most people would expect. <laughs> right. But you've done a lot. So thank you for coming on the show, Eliana. How are you? I'm doing really well. I actually just got back from New York, settling into the cold of Toronto for the next couple of weeks. Okay. But you're all, all over the place. So I'm sure you're going to be hopping and jumping somewhere else and would love to talk to you about that. So, all right, let's just get started. So how did you get into this line of work of working at Accenture and just being all things like futuristic, like what brought you to this? How did you get here? <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, I've had a very unorthodox career and I actually think that those tend to make for the best stories. I started my career thinking I was going to work for the United Nations and pursuing an international development sort of path, ended up pivoting and doing a finance and accounting pathway instead. I'm a chartered accountant by training. And so I had worked in tax, doing cross-border tax for high net worth individuals. I had worked in the world of audit. I went into the corporate finance domains, which I enjoyed. And that really introduced me to a lot of tech companies. And I realized that the tech clients were my favorite clients by, by a long shot. And it wasn't long before I was introduced to the concept of Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain more generally. And honestly, that just took me down a deep, deep, deep rabbit hole. And because of my accounting background previously, I was always thinking in terms of ledgers. Anyways, what does company A have on their books, company B, how do you compare the two? And so for me, it was such a natural realization that, wait a second, if we move towards distributed ledgers, maybe the role of auditors will change, maybe the function of audit will change. Does then the upfront finance function also need to change? And one thing led to another, and I became known as one of the thought leaders in the blockchain world, working with clients across industries around the, the world. And I had built the first ever blockchain consulting business at any of the large firms when I was at Deloitte. Yeah, yeah. I essentially am the reason that Deloitte got into the blockchain space and today audits companies that are in the industry, but also more broadly participates. And so fast forward, I left, did my own thing for a bit, ended up um, getting approached by Accenture and they really wanted me to come on board. And so that's the story of how I ended up becoming the youngest ever managing director at Accenture in its history. And we're a massive organization, you know, 750,000 employees globally. And I, I still... was that big? Oh, we're giant. We're the 750,000 employees? Thousand. Correct. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, we service, I don't know what the exact stat is right now, but over 85% of the Fortune 500 
in some way, shape or or form. And so when I joined the firm originally, I was the global blockchain innovation lead. Sometimes I was in two countries a week, educating boards of directors and senior executives about the future, where it was going, how this technology, alongside with others, is going to disrupt a lot of their processes and just their business strategy. And then fast forward, and I was essentially tapped on the shoulder to say, hey, we're launching a series of innovation hubs in key strategic locations, and we'd love to to build something in, in Canada. And so I ended up uh, taking on and being appointed into, into that role and really building our innovation practice from zero to today, we're what, a $750 million worth of sales influence business wow. that I've been able to build in the past five five or so years. So I'm pretty proud of, of that. And then I've been asked if I would officially take on all of our ESG business and you know nurture and incubate that so that's been a focus of mine um as well in the in the past year or so so yeah that's essentially my life in a nutshell <laughs> that's a lot of life uh so you got into block it sounds like it sounds like the the block being in blockchain was kind of your central point to differentiate you right and you jumped into that very early into the space uh what what were the initial challenges then and what do you see as the current state of blockchain now where we're going forward? And that's a broad question overall. Uh, but I, I still feel like we I felt like we were going really far and it felt like we were going to just take over the world in terms of blockchain technology from 20 and 21. And I feel like things are quite a bit different, but I'd love to get your assessment about where where we've been and where you saw the challenges and what you see as the current landscape. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've seen this industry evolve from a front row seat from the earliest, earliest days. I mean, I remember a time when I was in Vancouver going to a meetup, a meetup.com back in the day when people didn't really do that and finding an unmarked door, going down a set of stairs that were creaky, turning around the corner and thinking to myself, you know, this may be one of those stories where I never come back alive. And it's like, Ileana, why don't you have every alarm bell in your body going off of you're going to this like underground meetup for this Bitcoin thing that nobody really knows anything about. And I turn the corner and I walk in, room full of men, about 20 of them. Some of them look like they haven't showered in a couple of days. And on the screen is Vitalik Buterin dialing in on a Zoom call from from Toronto and just having a conversation with the folks that were in the room. That's how early this this was. And at that time, the reason I got super excited about the industry was the sheer volume of incredibly smart, literally brilliant people that were spending time and energy in the domain. And to me, as more of a layperson, I don't come from a deep computer science background, for example. Like if all of these people are so fascinated by this concept of consensus mechanisms and decentralization and distributed finance, there's something in here that is really worth exploring and digging into. And at the time, pretty much everyone in the industry while they were really smart, they were fairly incompetent at the communication side of things. Yeah, I don't think that's changed much, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, as an industry, as as the blockchain industry, we have a bit of a marketing problem 
actually we have a big marketing problem in that it tends to attract all of the really technically minded folks, which is amazing, but it tends to leave out or alienate the non-technical folks. And you need those in order to drive the mass adoption curve. So in the early days, what I spent my my time doing was just educating and evangelizing in the more traditional world. I'm using this in air quotes because I had access to a lot of senior executives in uh, banking, in legal, in finance, in government. And they didn't have an allergic reaction when I walked into a room because I could wear a suit and speak their language and demystify what this tech was and to educate and say, hey, this is not for money laundering or drug dealers or anything else of the sort, but this is a payments layer for the internet, which we didn't have initially. And this is kind of a big deal and it's going to be transformative. So that was the challenge we had back in the day around raising awareness. But what I've seen, unfortunately, in the hype cycles of, you know, 2016, 2017, when ICOs became more of of a thing, is you saw the the entry of the charlatans and the snake soil oh, salespeople. NFTs too, that exactly. There too. And then when we had the NFT boom, same thing, where there was just overabundance of projects that were fake. They were just there to raise money and then immediately have the founders disappear off the face of the planet. I actually remember, this is a fun story to reminisce on. I would get pings back in 2017 from friends of mine saying, hey, I didn't realize that you were advising such and such ICO project. And I was like, I'm I'm not. Why, why do you ask? They'd say, oh, well, I noticed that they listed your face and your picture on their website. Followed by sending a cease and desist letter, like, please take me off. Otherwise, the lawyers are going to be on on your case. Because really what they were trying to do was borrow my credibility and reputation, say, oh, if Ileana's involved, then maybe this provides an error of legitimacy. And so that really turned me off of the the industry, um, just because it wasn't the original intentions behind why I ended up getting, getting into the space. And I actually think that that deeply hurts the credibility of the industry overall, whether it was ICOs or whether it was some of the NFT projects that just didn't have the substantive value behind it. And then now with the the fall of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried in the news, you never want to be as an industry, the story that's dominating the evening news, that's never a good Sign. Morning news, fine. That's yes. when all the business happenings are recorded. <laughs> Evening news. It's all the scandals happening. That's it's when all the scandals. scandals. Yeah, exactly. And so, so that... governance. The lack of governance is really problematic. The good news is I'm starting to get more phone calls from companies in the Web3 space saying, so as a result of the recent events happening, we're really reevaluating our board of directors structure or the fact that we don't have one or we don't have the best governance processes. And they're like, Ileana, can you come in and help us think through this and what are we missing and sit on the board and so on and so forth. So I'm hoping that this serves as a wake-up call for the companies operating in Web3. Just because you're Web3 does not give you a license to completely throw away all of the other best practices of operating a business no, look, uh, you can't use new tools to to break old rules 
like period, like we can, right. I can come up with new technology and if I kill somebody, it's still murder. Right. So like if you commit fraud, it's still fraud. And so it's not, it's, it's, it's nothing, you're not creating anything new if you're not creating actual value. And that's what Mm -hmm. folks have to really think about within web three. Like it still goes back to the fundamentals. What problem are you solving? How are you adding value? How can you help your customer through this? And so I hope to be one of those voices as you are the, one of the Steve Jobs or the Obama. I'm not saying I'm them. I'm saying we want to hopefully can do what they did, what Obama did for politics, what Steve Jobs, I think, did for computing to make it interesting and to understand how the technology can, can really connect to everyday people is something that I feel is really missing within the industry. So, you know, Ileana, we're going to do something. I want to team up with, with you something on that. I don't know what that is yet. And I'm recruiting her hard to do some stuff. So I've been working. So hopefully we can, we'll talk about that at some point in the future. So, okay. What if you didn't need money? What would you do? What would your life be? What would you, what would be your passion? If you didn't need money, what would you, Ileana, be doing right now? I don't know if it would change drastically to be, to be honest. So I love cabins, cabins and woods to go sit, read endlessly, collect ideas. But then I enjoy people. And I joke that I really enjoy collecting interesting humans and hearing what they're up to, and then being able to connect them with others that I've come across in my in my travels. I mean, I place on average, maybe one person a month or every two months in a new job for fun. I'm not a recruiter. I don't run an agency, but I come across so many folks in my adventures. And then it's the connecting of the dots of, hey, you should really talk to to so-and-so, whether it be startups that are looking for investors, investors that are looking for places to deploy their capital, or filling a really hard to find board seat or senior exec position. So I would continue to do that. And I love communicating ideas, especially the ideas I've learned by reading or by talking to those interesting people. And so for me, I would want to continue to evangelize and help people prepare for where the future is going so that they're ready for it as opposed to being caught off guard. And I have, as my parents joke, the gift of the gab. And so for me, the ability to stand on a stage and use that as a platform to educate hundreds or thousands of people of where things are going and what it means for them specifically, I would still want to do that. And I would still want to do the board of directors work to be able to contribute some of the skills that I have towards those organizations. So yeah, it's not that different from today, other than I would be spending more time in the the cabins completely off grid. But now there's just so much interesting stuff happening that I'm getting a little bit of FOMO to be able to pull myself away. I'm actually planning a spa weekend to speak to no one this weekend coming up. And I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. No. So, okay, let's talk about the future. You said once in a speech that if you blink, the future is here. And you often advise clients because, you know, you're you guys are into hockey to go where the puck is is heading. Right. How do you set up processes to know where the puck is going? How do you advise businesses on doing just that? Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of times, and understandably so, a business leader is so focused on the day-to-day of the operations of 
whatever field they happen to be in. And it's actually quite unnatural for them to pop their heads up above the day to day and look around and figure out, well, what's next? Where should I be going? Where should I be investing? And so the best systematic hack I would recommend for business leaders is to surround themselves with a mini board of advisors, if you will, of people that they can get together with on at least a quarterly basis who are outside of their day-to-day industry to get caught up on what else is happening in the rest of the world that they might need to incorporate into their into their business. I mean, that's the role I tend to play when I sit on a board of directors or when Accenture gets pulled in by a client to be an advisor. As an example, I remember when I was first approached to sit on the board of directors at Sunnybrook Hospital, which is considered one of the top two hospitals in Canada and one of the top 20 globally. Initially, my reaction to the recruiter was, why me? I'm not a doctor. I don't have a deep health background of advised some clients in the healthcare space. And the response from the recruiter was, that's precisely why the board is interested in your your profile. You come from an innovation first background and a technology first background, and you have a completely different set of demographics from your age to your, your background growing up. And that's the outside in perspective we need to include in the board. We don't need more people who deeply understand health or insurance or any of those related domains. We already have those really well, well covered. So it really boils down to the the business leaders to make sure that they are surrounding themselves with voices that are not singing the same the same chorus. Yes. So okay. So having a board of advisors. Anything else you would recommend? Is there any books or anything that you do that that keeps you up, or any other things that you think kind of helps you see possible trends of the future? Honestly, I think people act as some of the best filtering mechanisms. There's no shortage of books. There's no shortage of podcasts. But I also know it's unrealistic to ask someone to just randomly go and listen to five hours of content because realistically they won't. And so if they have people that they trust that are from all over the place, that's usually how you'll get exposed to things. And then once something piques your interest, then of course you can go deep down the rabbit hole of, of learning more. Yeah. So what would you, you're advising businesses right now, if you had to say the most essential trend to, to understand and follow right now, I can guess what this is going to be. What would it be and why? AI. Yeah. I mean, how did I guess? Ding. That's not, ding, 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 ding. Right. Bingo. Bingo. Because unlike the metaverse or the trends that we saw around Internet of Things that only apply in certain instances and certain use cases with AI and Gen AI in in particular, the impacts are widespread. You can't hide from this. I mean, I was just having a conversation a couple of months ago with a woman on my team. She's a really talented graphic designer, creative director, and she was sharing with me her desire to do more branding work and to expand her portfolio in that direction and acquire more skills. And I said, okay, great. I'm super supportive of your continued career growth. But have you started thinking about using all the Gen AI tools to automate bits and pieces of your current role? Because I'm not planning on backfilling your role as it currently exists. 
And she looked at me and she was like, mm, no, I mean, I haven't really had time. I've been so swamped with my day-to-day work. And I pushed back on her gently to say, listen, you work in innovation. While you are on my payroll, I expect that you are spending three or four hours a week learning all of these tools. Because if you can get to the point that you've automated or you've augmented 30, 40, 50% of your work with these tools, guess what? It will carve out free time for you to be creative and for you to develop this new learning pathway and for you to start pivoting your, your career. And she looked at me stunned. It's not where she thought the conversation was was going. And then fast forward, it's been maybe two or so months. And today she is happily using a whole suite of the Gen AI tools to make her day-to-day easier. And she's having so much fun because it's almost like having a colleague, a co-pilot. She's more productive and she's had more time to then invest in some of the cool AI projects that we're working on and to do some of the branding work that she wanted to. So it's a win-win for everyone, regardless of what level in the organization you're in. But there is a conscious shift required for the leaders and executives and board members today to think about what's the impact of AI on various job profiles, but then more broadly, what's the impact of AI on various business processes? And then at the highest level, What does the impact of AI fundamentally mean for the business that you're operating in? And are you potentially at risk of, you know, fine tuning a business that in itself is actually going to be obsolete three years from now, and you're not paying attention to this big existential risk. And we see this happening quite a bit. Yes, absolutely. So what are some of the, what are the top gen gen AI tools you recommend uh, folks think about? Like you told your, your, uh, your, your colleague that work, that works with you. What are some of the top things that helped her? And what what do you see as like some of the top three or four things that that, that people need to look at? It can be in branding, marketing, or, or processes. I'll let you just figure out which ones you think are, are mm-hmm. the best to recommend. And I mean, there are countless of these cheat sheets that are circulating online that will help you figure out yes, based on your based idea. on your function and the type of role that you have, what are the tools you should be looking at? Okay. And you don't even have to venture that far. If you think about Canva, the tool that's widely used for creating of graphics, they've already integrated a number of Gen AI features directly into Canva. So you don't have to leave the platform, go to Photoshop, use one of the advanced photo editing tools, and then come back into Canva. You can do it right then and and there. You just have to wrap your head around the, the product set. In the same way that, remember, I mean, even to this day, you open up somebody's resume and they'll have a line at the bottom that says, I'm skilled in PowerPoint and Excel and Microsoft Office. And I remember thinking this to myself in 2016 when I was reading some interviews for a position I had open that was a technical role and thinking to myself, why is this still on resumes? This is not a new skill. If you don't know how to use Microsoft Office, I'm sorry, but you're not going to be qualified for... It's almost like not reading at this point. You it's like... almost like not being able to, to read. And I was hiring for technical roles in the blockchain space and, and the rest. Like, Okay, this is just bare, 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 bare bones. In the future, being able to use these AI-assisted tools, I think is going to replace those line items on the 
on the CV. And I mean, if you're an accountant or you're working in finance, you're going to be using a completely different set of tools than if you're a creative marketer that needs to generate entirely new images based on prompts. Broader than what are some of the, because you sound like you have some cheat sheets for some of these industries. Do you know where people might go to learn some cheat sheets uh, from like high level industries? Like where would you, where would you point them to? Actually, if they come to my LinkedIn, I tend to repost pretty frequently. And this gives me a reminder. Maybe what I'll do is I'll just put together a collection of the most common ones that I tend to send to, to people. You can go there too. If you have a yeah. website, I know you have a website. If you have it linked there, that way people can go to your website, learn more about you. If you want to give us a page there, that's also fine. We can yeah. put it in the podcast. Perfect. If you check out my personal website, ilianaov.com, um, I'll link it there as well. Yeah, you have an IOV, like yeah, you got you got that JFK. I saw that. That's good. You got your you got it down to three letters. I picked that up. Pretty slick. <laughs> I mean, my last name is a double last name. It's Oris Valiente. And if you want to hear something funny about okay. names, sure. Huh, I recently discovered only a couple of months ago that if you take the Latin origin of my last name and translate into English, Oris Valiente translates into they who have a brave mouth. That is you. Which, considering how much talking I do and public speaking and presenting and evangelizing, it's actually so fitting. That's actually, they just. They did not. And it gets even. That's like, that's even makes it more like meant to be. That's wild. It gets crazier. Okay. Can you believe this? Let's hear it. Okay. So. The serendipity in life is hilarious. I was in Greece earlier this this summer for uh, for a month in Europe, traveling with my niece. And while in Greece, every time I'd introduce myself to a local person, they'd say, "Ah, Iliana, that's a Greek name." Okay, maybe it's definitely not Russian, and I don't think it's Cuban either. That's my 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 ethnic background mix. And so finally, background. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) And so finally, I sat down and I started to do some research, and sure enough, the origin of the name Eliana is in fact Greek. And it means bright or a ray of sunshine. I was like, oh, that's such a sweet first first name. But that's not why I'm telling you the story. I'm telling you the story because a couple of weeks ago, I was in New York at a dinner party. And I was mentioning to someone that I had an AI-powered digital human twin of myself being being built. Her name is Lila. And we can dive into that later. And and the woman I was chatting to says, oh, Lila, that's a really beautiful name. Did you know that in Hebrew, it means night? I said, oh, no, I had no idea. And so I go home, I do some research. And sure enough, it means of the night. I was like, oh, fascinating. The opposites of Ileana and Lila and the AI and the the real human version. I just thought that this was all very uncanny. And your AI, your AI digital twin is uh, is the dark version of you. The you know slightly <laughs> slightly more muted version, not flying next to to the sun. <laughs> Balance. Oh, so so tell us about this digital your, your digital power itself. What is this about? <laughs> so it's really this idea that in the future. I think it's really reasonable to expect that people are going to have AI extensions of themselves, not to replace the human, but to really augment the the human. And so I've jumped in with both feet, given that I work in innovation and I think it's super important for me as a business leader to set 
the intention and to show that we're we're leading the way. And so I have this AI human twin that's being developed and she's been trained on my voice. So I've spent probably six hours or so in various podcast studios recording cheerful sounding voice, my neutral voice, my sad voice, so that she can learn the various intonations. She's being trained on various pieces of thought leadership that I've published in in the past and other materials that are interesting around the future of work, the future of um, of travel and other industries that I have experience in. And then the idea is that you'll be able to talk to her in the same way that you're talking to to me, and you could ask her a question and she'll respond and she's digital, but she looks like me. I've submitted 3D body scans of myself, all sorts of really awkward close-up photos, including of my teeth, you know, because your teeth hold up the, the rest of your face. There's been a character designer drawing out my hair so that, you know, when I move, my hair moves and she has an element of, of that and and gestures. And then in the future, you'll walk into one of our offices and next to the reception desk, there may be a 3D display and out pops out Lila to say, hi, welcome to our office. I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have and, and, you know, be that front line of communication and then pull me in when you need the real Ileana to come in for a much harder, more complex conversation. That is really cool. I would love to be able to do that too. So I talked to you afterwards. That just sounds so fascinating to me. Uh, it also makes me think of, uh, Michael Jackson, and I, just wait. I, I got. I got to Okay, okay. I'm calling. Like, okay, here, here it comes. So, like, his family, which I would not have done, sold away his rights for like a billion dollars, which sounds like a lot. But something I've always thought is that what they're going to do, if they're smart, and they are because they're multinational corporations. I think it's Sony that owns that owns now the rights. They're going to do exactly what you're saying to do actually immersive shows with Michael Jackson to recreate everything. And I would still show up to that show because I get a chance to see him. And can you imagine what that would be like when that happens? And I really want to be a part of doing something like that. That's that's why I'm saying that. So I'm manifesting that in the universe that maybe we'll do it together. Somebody will. I've always wanted to be a part of that legacy because I, I just think it's such a shame that a lot of this generation did not get a chance to experience like that. The magic of what he did and how he transformed entertainment, music, uh, performing like no one ever has since. I'm saying all that to say, like, I see that being applied to entertainment. That's the space that we're looking to get into with Disrupt, right, in terms of really helping brands gamify the loyalty experience. And I just see that being the future. As you as you described how you said that, I also see it that, you know, maybe you're, you know, I don't know, you're dating anybody, kids or whatever. And if you're not going to have kids, it's fine. Your nieces and nephews, when you are not here anymore, they can also ask questions to uh to uh lila about who you were and learn about you so i, I find it very fascinating from a lot of points of view mm-hmm. certainly a ton to navigate from an ethical standpoint which is hugely important and every project that we do at accenture with our clients has that ethics baked into it yes. from the from the earliest outset but i think the point that you're raising around resurrecting of people who are no longer physically alive is definitely going to be a, a trend. And I think it may be at the core or one of the topics at the core of the labor dispute with all the entertainment oh, studios, 
right now, right? And what happens if you were to displace a current actor that's still alive because you're resurrecting someone else who has the same star power? And when you make a film with them, people will show will show up. Absolutely. So lots of thorny issues that need to be navigated. Oh no, there's going to be a lot. And I think that's that's. You know, I, I I can say my piece very 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 plainly, and I, and I know you you have you advise many people, but I think that's extremely important, and I don't think industry will do that unless they have reason to do that. That's why policy is so important. That's why unions are important because generally they were they weren't going to do it. I mean, capital generally figures out the most efficient way to make capital and considers everything else afterwards. Although they say it's ethics, generally it's going to be the fastest way to make profit, and we'll figure out the ethics later. And I, I I do think that's the biggest risk with AI for a lot of reasons, right? I think there's a risk for the reasons you just stated, we just stated. I think it's a risk that could end up building more mistrust because there's already some mistrust, right? And if these things happen and we and we and we and we do things that are just uh using AI to for expedient purposes and not considering the ethics and how we should build it. I think it can cause a lot of backlash very quickly and cause a lot of chaos, if you will. And the, and the problem won't be the technology. The problem will be people and managing uh, governments and institutions because the backlash will be, I think, greater than people think if there's a lot of mistrust. That's my perspective. I don't know how you feel about that. Technology is very rarely the problem. In fact, it's most of the time the the challenge with perception humans and the view of is this trustworthy is this not trustworthy and the world economic forum published a really great report a couple of months ago outlining the various dimensions of trust that are required in the general population around adoption of ai and it includes things it they're fairly obvious when you think about them but things like transparency and communication and even the disclosure are you interacting with an AI-powered version of me or are you interacting with, with me? It's important for you to know that from the outset. Otherwise, it's not a pleasant surprise that would reduce the overall trust framework. And it's the reason that we are so intentional with every project we do at Accenture to make sure that those ethics are there because once you lose that trust, you cannot gain it back easily. Yeah, I mean, ask Facebook, right? So it's 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 still working to gain that trust back, and they've made a lot of smart moves. But over, overall, because of 2016 and many other things, they still were like working to regain trust. I will say that um, I need to connect you with a man named uh, Javier Viana, who actually does. He actually has. He's a postdoc at MIT, and he came out of the University of Cincinnati. And also, I'll connect you with. Um, Dr. Cohen, who's been a leader, leading researcher within AI for the last 30 years with explainable AI, transparent AI. And his uh his student, who's now a postdoc at MIT, has has a whole um, startup around, around transparent AI and being able to take the, the black box that mostly is AI, because we don't know the model of chat GPT in terms of how it actually makes decisions, right? We don't, from my understanding, we don't, we don't, we don't have that. Uh, and so I think it's very important for the reasons you just stated for transparency. But remind me to make that connection for you, because I think those are both of those folks are opportunities for you to connect. And then, you know, maybe we'll get you down to Cincinnati. I, I'm, I'm still working. <laughs> <laughs> still making it happen. We also just so you know, just uh, UC created a new building, uh, 180,000 square foot digital futures uh -huh. that is dedicated to AI and blockchain and many and, and things in the future, things you, deep, you deeply care about. So 
with that, thinking about the trustworthiness with AI and blockchain, how do you see the two, if at all, uh, being able to complement each other? Uh, I have thoughts, but I'd love to get your thoughts because you've been deep in the blockchain industry much longer than me. Mm-hmm. So I think the easiest way to think of it is with blockchain and the metaverse suite of technologies more broadly, really what's at the core of it is we're redefining what it means to be present somewhere. And there's a blurred line between the physical world that we live in today the purely digital world and everything in between and the various dimensions of of it. So from that regard, I've heard a couple of people say like, oh, is metaverse dead? Like, it is absolutely not. And when you look at the advancements, not just in the headsets, because there's often this misconception that everything metaverse is always in, in the headset, but it's also the augmented reality stuff on your phone. It's the 3D displays. We have a looking glass here in the in the office, not, not far from here, which is fantastic. You don't need any hardware in order to interact, uh, in order to interact with it. So what the Metaverse is going to provide is a sense of place that is a persistent location that you can pop in and pop out of. What a lot of the blockchain crypto tech is going to enable is a payments layer that is native digitally and that supports all types of transactions that can happen in those virtual or physical or everything in between type spaces. And then AI will just be applied across the stack so you can be in a virtual world interacting with an AI powered agent as as an example. Let me bring this to life. We have built at Accenture a product called Avenues. And Avenues is a virtual reality training simulation for social workers to get them trained on managing really difficult situations. Example, you're a social worker and you need to go into someone's home and decide whether that home is a safe environment for a child to stay in or if that child needs to be pulled out and put into foster care. That is not a decision that you can make lightly. And how do you train a social worker for that kind of a complex scenario? Well, virtual reality training is one of the best ways to train for it because the simulation is so immersive. When I think back to my first time doing that training, I get goosebumps. It's so powerful. You feel like you're there, you hear the the, the background noise, and it's a psychologically safe place to, to learn because you're essentially role-playing the questions that you can ask. And based on how the characters are responding, um, it's almost taking you down a tree, a Merkle tree root um, graph of what other possible outcomes might be. Now, imagine layering that kind of immersive virtual reality training with an AI component so that the script that I'm experiencing as I interact with this character is dynamic and it's evolving based on my level of shown empathy and understanding of the complexity. And my training scenario looks different from your training scenario. And it's bespoke and customized for what you need in that moment versus what I need in that in that I moment. Can, I can see that. Yes, I can see that. Right. I can see that. I can see that playing out. I mean, that, that's how I see it being applied to immersive experiences and you know, um, doing things with with brands because brands spend all brands spend a lot of money on events and things like that, but don't really have an ROI to connect how their customers do things at these events. So you can do things like that with digital ownership. That's kind of where I see the future with what we're going to do. 
And then you can use AI to customize the experience to the consumer uh, as you know, know more and more about them, right? So it's, I, I agree with you. I think people that are saying NFTs, Web3 is dead, just is a fundamental misunderstanding of how the technology is going to integrate into all of our experiences. It's kind of like how GPS combined with the phone, like they are, they they come together as components to create new experiences for us to enhance what we already have. So uh, I completely agree. A few years ago, I was on a stage and I said, five years from now, I do not want to be on the stage talking about blockchain. If I'm still on the stage talking about blockchain, we have failed as an industry. That five-year prediction mark has come, it has gone. And I still get invites to speak just about blockchain at blockchain-only conferences. And I really fundamentally think that we're missing the boat. And the boat in this scenario is, at the end of the day, the average consumer does not care what technology they are using, nor should they care about the tech they're using. What needs to be primary is the use case. What's the value that they are getting? How are they interacting with the the tech? The ideal way to give somebody an NFT is for them to not even know that they have an NFT. If you look at what Starbucks is doing with their Odyssey loyalty program, the average person receiving it has no idea that it's there. In the future, when you work for a company and you receive a training credential because you did a learning module or uh, to show that you were in fact working there, it will sit in a wallet that you that you own as a credential to prove that you have this history, you may not even know that it's called an NFT at that point in time. You won't. No one's going to call it an NFT. Like, I think just to skip rid of the term, it's over. Like, in terms of NFTs being dead, the technology isn't. Let's just, the, the terminology is. The technology isn't. So, Correct. Oh, that was good. Let's write that down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, digital nomad. Like, uh, it's you, you speak a lot about that, too, in terms of it's not even the future of work currently. Now, I had this debate with my father. He's 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 saying, like, look, people have to be in the office in order to really collaborate and get great ideas together. What is your thought in terms of the future of work when it comes to where we work and how we work? The future of work depends on the individual. And it depends on what that individual really needs to get out. And it's also job and function specific. I'll give you an example. At... Uh, across some of my teams, I've issued a blanket statement that says, listen, I'm not forcing you into the office. If you want to come into the office every day, go ahead. If you never want to come into the office, also go right ahead. Unless we're having a full team meeting, a strategy day, there's a client working session and the client's in the office. And of course, logic would dictate you need to be in in the office. But I've hired really smart people. And it's my leadership philosophy to get out of their way to let them do what they do do best. They don't need that babysitting. And in fact, the more autonomy you give people over their work, generally that tends to correlate to a much higher uh, work satisfaction type type level. Now is it important to get together in person and have the FaceTime and to do those collaborative sessions? Absolutely. But when you truly think about a job and when you deconstruct all of the activities that need to happen in the course of a day, not all of those activities lend themselves well to having people in. So I tend to use this philosophy of you have to earn the commute of the people that you work with. And leadership is not about 
putting out a, a mandate and dictating what people do. It's about that reciprocal relationship between you and the people on the, the team and their willingness, essentially, to follow your, your lead. These are not dictatorship type type moments. So that's my philosophy on general return to to work. And I feel that many of the blanket forced in office mandates are missing the the subtle nuance that's that's involved. But this philosophy in my mind goes a lot further. And so I've actually been working on a new theory that is called the potted plant theory. Correct. And it's really this idea that you can place humans on a spectrum where on one side of the spectrum, you have sequoias. Picture the large trees. They're beautiful, majestic. They have centuries of secrets that they that they keep and extensive root networks. You cannot transplant a sequoia tree if your life depended on it. It doesn't want to be transplanted. It's not physically possible. But then you move along the spectrum to a slightly smaller tree. A red maple tree is a good example. You can't transplant a red maple tree once, twice, maybe three times in its life with the help of an arborist and if all the conditions are are met. And that tree can thrive in its new environment. You move further along the spectrum and you end up in potted plant territory. That's actually where I sit. And as a potted plant, your roots are with you wherever you go. And so you tend to feel at home everywhere. And you can move a potted plant room to room, city to city, country to country, and they're probably fine. And then the farthest end of that spectrum are sequoia trees, uh, sorry, uh, air plants. And air plants, if you've walked into a flower shop, you've seen them. They're usually hanging in a small glass jar. They don't have large complex roots. They don't need a ton of water or soil and moisture from the environment is enough and they thrive with that. So humans are akin to to plants in in a way. And if you map them on a two by two matrix, where on the one side, you have the need for certainty. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have the need for novelty. An air plant tends to fall higher on the need for novelty than a sequoia, which is very high on the certainty dimension. And the other dimension is the number of resources required in order for that individual to feel settled, secure, established, and to thrive. An air plant has a very low resource requirements, little air, lots of um, humidity, very little water, very little soil, no need for traditional fertilizer, whereas a sequoia tree has really high resource requirements. And so as an individual, every person has a human plant archetype, depending on where they fall on that spectrum. And that informs how you feel about your workplace, not just the physical environment that you're going into, but also the type of work environment that you that you thrive in, your personal relationships, and just in general, how much stimulation you need in order to really feel like you are that you're excelling. So I think that's another overlay to to add to this whole debate. That's great. So what you're saying is my dad is a, is a sequoia and I'm an air plant. So it's like <laughs> it's very it, possible, but yes. also. The world is mostly designed for sequoias. The world as we know it. Absolutely. Today. And historically. That's why we're disruptors. That's why we're on disruptors. We're on the. Exactly. There are probably lots of people that fall elsewhere in the spectrum. But if all they've ever seen role modeled 
is a sequoia, then they're living a trapped potted plant life or a trapped air plant life. And I don't think that makes for a very happy existence. So if people could better understand themselves, their archetypes, make decisions to live life in accordance to who they really are, and employers could better understand the archetypes of teammates that they have, I think it would go a long way to customizing and individualizing the employee journey and considering how much of our days we spend at work that's super important. We think about personalizing the consumer journey as the buyer and personalization is massive and that's what every retailer is thinking about. But why don't we apply that same rationale to our most valuable resource at an organization, which is our employee base? That might be the most comprehensive metaphor I've ever heard for digital nomad in the future of work. That's really good. That's really good. That's, uh, yeah, you definitely, I could see a whole book being developed on that. That's that that's going to be excellent. So I can't wait to actually read that uh, ILV. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so. funny that you mentioned book because I've been in discussions to do a research collaboration to look at the neuroscience to understand is the brain composition and chemical levels different in potted plants versus air plants versus sequoia trees. So it's not a lifestyle choice necessarily in and of its own, but it's also a fundamental wiring. And so there are some hypotheses that we're, we're testing and I encourage people to check out the website that's uh, just launching pottedplanttheory.com and sign up for early preview of materials and early preview of the book that's being worked on. All right, let's get a couple of uh, uh, quick round robin questions here towards the end. Uh, a little bit about you. So, a time you have failed, and that you know very quickly that 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 made you better, or a time you had a setback and made you better. Uh, I'll talk about burnout. For me, I hit a wall from honestly working too hard and completely oh. neglecting. Oh yeah, two years ago. <laughs> it was very unpleasant. I mean, you know how a computer prompts you to restart every once in a while and you have the option of ignoring the notification. I did that. I did that. I did that until finally just fully shut down. And I remember getting off of a phone call with somebody and realizing after I hung up, I don't know who I just talked to. And I don't know what we talked about. And I had meeting notes, but I couldn't read them because my eyes were going cross-eyed. So... That was the starkest reminder I needed of, hey, I'm actually not a robot. I'm human. I have limitations and I need to honor those. There's a lot of like content out there that says like, well, when you're working towards getting where you want to, you can't have balance. I don't agree with that. I think it depends on how you define balance. I think it's always being mindful of where you are and making sure you're taking care of yourself. Because if you don't have balance, you don't have anything like if you if you. <laughs> You end up getting sick and dying, but you know, hell, you made two million dollars. You're you're not going. That's not going to be something you're going to be proud of. Like that's how I think. I mean, you're going to want to experience life. So it's. I'm glad you saw that. And there are limits, and you are amazing, but you do have limits. <laughs> I actually considered getting a tattoo on my wrist that would act as a reminder that I'm not a robot or a machine. You know, I'm only human and it's okay to breathe. And it's encouraged to do mindfulness exercises and, you know, actually live life in the in the process. So it's really shifted my management style, my leadership philosophy, my personal outlook. So a lot to learn from the, the burnout. I don't recommend anyone has to get all the way to that brink of a wall. It's really unpleasant. 
Yeah, I feel like a lot of us end up getting there, though. But it's it's it, it happens. Uh, what advice would you give your younger self, and what would you ignore? <sighs> what I would ignore is always trying to please everyone because you can't. And by definition, when you're working on something that's new, when you're working on something that's disruptive, you have to speak up and you're usually challenging the status quo. And that flies in the face of what women especially are often conditioned to do from an early age. Um, I was having this conversation with my 15-year-old niece while touring her through, through Europe this summer of, listen, we expect little girls to be docile and obedient and calm and follow instructions. But then we want young women that speak up and that are bold and that are brave. And you're like, well, one way of conditioning does not lead to the other. So at one point in that journey, we have to start normalizing that we want the creative thought and to get comfortable with the dis the discomfort. So that's something I wish I had learned probably even earlier on. It would have saved me a lot of the the back and forth of, oh no, but if I say this, I'm really going to offend XYZ cohort. There's no, there's no winning. And if you're going to push a boundary, you're inevitably going to make people feel uncomfortable in the the process. You can do your best. And I try to do my best to hold people's hands and say, listen, we've got you. We'll lead you into that future state. But without the discomfort, there can be no growth. But the world is going to change around you, whether you like it or not. You don't really have the option. Yeah, that's great. Uh, okay, so uh, you have a slogan that's the theme of your life. What is that slogan and why? <laughs> Let's build a world that humans actually want to to live in. Yeah, I think you explained why that's important. We've kind of talked about that. All right, you got a committee of three to advise you on life, business. Who are these three people and why? My guess is your day is going to be one, but go ahead. My <laughs> no, no. I mean, my parents are a fantastic influence on me in terms of no pressure. Well, no, no, no. But in terms of I grew up in multiple countries moving around regularly as a child. I've lost track of how many schools I've I've gone to. And what that has taught me is the value of resiliency and adaptability. So it doesn't matter if you were to plop me to Mars tomorrow, I would probably be just fine. And so in that regard, I have the utmost respect for for them and a lot of the the lessons I learned early, early on. So I think to round out my advisory panel, one is a mentor of mine who has written a number of books, has spoken on some of the world's largest stages. And he's really interesting because he's really carved out life and living it on his own terms and looking at strengths and weaknesses and how he can really anchor there. So that's something I definitely, definitely respect. And some of the other folks that I tend to admire include the Obamas and the amount of grace that they exhibit when under pressure is a lot. I think of Michelle Obama's quote regularly, when they go low, we go high. And I think that that's a mantra I I try to live by every single day. And so I'm really grateful for the two of them as, um, as role models. And I don't know if there's a specific other pillar or person, but I find I learn from everyone I meet. And 
somebody asked me the other day, they're like, how many people do you think you've met in the past year? I was like, I don't know, maybe a thousand, maybe 1500. And this person nearly fell off their chair. They're like, that's a lot of people. I'm like, oh, well, I mean, when you add in a dinner party here, a dinner party there, a conference there, introductions to these people over here, a work-related meeting, it quickly adds up. And so I find them constantly learning from all of these interactions. You never know where the next tidbit of inspiration and insight will come from. Yeah. All right. Final question. This is a hard one. What's an important truth you have that many people disagree with you on? Let's talk about mental health for a moment. And it's this realization that there's not much that separates someone who has really hit um, a hard time in their life and ends up, let's say, on the street and ends up homeless versus someone that on the surface appears to have everything together. I have seen personally firsthand um, someone who is close to me on the brink of a lot of mental health challenges where I could absolutely see how if we don't have enough of a strong social safety net, how people can fall through the cracks through really no fault of their of their own, because we do not treat mental health in the same way that we treat a physical ailment. And because they tend to be invisible, I think that there's just a lot of human potential that ends up being lost as a result of it not receiving the attention that it deserves. And culturally, there are certain parts of the world where there is no concept of of mental health. It's the grand and bearer type of mentality. And I've just seen it really close up to, to recognize that, you know, it's a sliding scale and you need some level of systematic support structures so people don't end up relying entirely on their own. We are a very social species. We're not meant to be in isolation and solving everything entirely on our own. I appreciate you coming on Disruption Now. This is going to be a great show. We're definitely going to have a lot to talk about uh, to dissect on this. So I'm so looking forward to it. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This is a delight.